Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show coming to you here on a Tuesday night. When are we starting this? What is the time? 9 p.m. even. I have Rocky, our cat, on the right. Rosie on my right as well. I'm doing something. Been trying this lately. A little bit of a different recording solution. Get tired of sitting in the office all day long and then doing it uh, at night as well. So recording on the couch using a little recorder here recommended to me by my pal Jack Benyon, IndyCar reporter at The Race. And I I will mention Jack here again in just a moment. Uh, big thanks to all of y'all for tuning in. Oh, boy. Hey, we had Nashville last weekend. That was boring. Uh, and, hey, we've got more Alex Pillow legal stuff. And, hey, we got some other things going on, too. So why don't I say very quickly, as always, a huge thanks to Jerry Suddeth, who puts together the questions for me. He said this week, let me check the numbers, get it absolutely spot on. Uh, how many did he say? I believe he said 6,000. 6,000 words of questions, y'all. That's crazy. Over 80 80 questions submitted, many of them similar. So Jerry, as I ask him, hey, please find the best one on the theme, whatever it might be, and let's use that instead of just answering kind of the same question over and over again with mild, mild shades of differences. So if I don't get to your exact question, just know that I appreciate you sending those in, and hopefully we'll keep it rocking. Try and do about an hour per show for those who are new to this. I can't guarantee if that's going to be exactly what we hold to since we do have so much to discuss, but I'll do my best. Also need to have dinner here. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my wife and I are going to try and have dinner at about 10 o'clock tonight. A, uh, another day of us out running errands, so a little bit of a later return here. So, once again, thanks to Jerry and also to our long-standing partners, Cooper Tires, those who power the road to Indy, the Justice Brothers, those who make automotive and just uh, aeromotive, automotive, locomotive, you name it chemicals and lubricants. I uh, use them for 30 plus years on my end and they support a number of really, really awesome racing teams as well. And then finally our pals at torontomotorsports.com who have the best memorabilia, the most fun memorabilia, racing t-shirts and hats and stickers and diecast models. Pay them a visit, please. So yeah, let's get to a little bit of upfront stuff before we get into your questions, just because, you know, why not? Let's have fun. Uh, got home, and a, a dear member of the Day listener group uh, mentioned that, hey, your name's getting dragged a little bit on good old social media. Not uncommon. That's why social media is there, right? Why be nice to each other when you can say mean things? Um, last week, after sitting on the story for a couple of weeks at a particular person's request... I won't reveal sources because I'm not supposed to, but I'll just say that there's a person who said, hey, if you don't need to publish this story, please don't. Uh, so I didn't. Did mention, though, that, hey, if others start to get wind of this story, as is often the case, uh, I'll need to go with it. I'll need to push that story out because there's no need in being a reporter and not reporting something, especially if you realize someone else has found out about it, and they're going to report it. So, of course, 
that's what you get hired to do, but you also try and help folks out when they ask, if possible. So that was done, but then got wind that uh, a prominent newspaper in Sweden found out that, as what I wrote and filed with Racer, Racer Magazine, Racer.com on Thursday, that, hey, Felix Rosenquist might not be all the way under contract like it was presented. And that wasn't written as speculation. Uh, that was written after, I believe, as I've run the, the tally in my head a couple times, six points of confirmation, six sources. Obviously not going to tell you who the sources were, but I can say that there's no question about the accuracy of what was written. And those who were sources, if you knew who they were, everyone would be nodding their head going, yes, zero question about the story's accuracy. Wrote that saying, hey, Felix is indeed known to be a driver that can be had next season, different than what has been represented uh, through press release and whatever, whatever. Woke up Friday morning expecting some form of formal pushback. That's often what happens, right? Uh, pushback doesn't mean that what you wrote was wrong. It just means that a person, a place, a thing, or whatever feels the need to present in a public manner that, hey, no, wrong, bad, you name it, whatever their motivations might be. Pointed out by a Prude member today that, hey, the driver in this article you wrote Thursday, he's saying without naming it directly that it's wrong, it's false, I'm signed, everything's good, and right? Uh, did this driver say these things to another reporter just unprompted? Were these statements suggested, urged, or whatnot by others within the organization? I don't know. But it sure just stood out as a little bit of both weird, but again, not unexpected. Okay, again, Motivations for saying, ah, this thing's false and fake, and yet, look, plenty of reasons for it. Didn't take it personally, didn't, wasn't surprised by it. No harm, no bad feelings, whatever, towards Felix for, or whomever through Felix, uh, calling me out, although not directly for being wrong and false and you name it. Um, so let's then come back to my man. <laughs> Jack Benyon from The Race. Then another person, one of my sources on the story, said, hey, yeah, you actually might go read this story that Jack Benyon just posted. So in my conversations while the story was being formed, one of the sources said that Felix had a IndyCar option for next year. This was spoken off the record at the time, so that was not included in the story. Having an option on someone is not the same as that person being under contract. You would have to take up that option for the person to then be under contract. That is not the case as I understood it. Therefore, I wrote the story saying, hey, this guy is understood to be out and being shopped by his manager. I have teams uh, who may or may not have said, hi, uh, we've just had this person shop to us uh, as being available for next year. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into this, but this one key point of Felix having an option being held on him for next year that could be taken up, told off the record, was not included there for in what I wrote. 
that changed. And what I read here in a fine piece of reporting by the uh, good young man, that is Jack Benyon, someone who's not prone uh, and not drawn by drama and nonsense, but actual true reporting. Uh, And so in his article here, I'll just read this and then I'm going to move on. Jack's words. McLaren and Rosenquist have confirmed directly to the race that the team has an option on Rosenquist for IndyCar in 2023. And should it trigger that option, no new deal would need to be signed. Rosenquist will continue with Aero McLaren SP and IndyCar. There are no clauses in the contract that would change this. Jack goes on to write, If McLaren doesn't exercise that option, Rosenquist will be free to negotiate a new deal in IndyCar with other teams, or McLaren could offer Rosenquist a Formula E seat in the team it's launching in the All-Electric Championship next season. (sighs) I had to look it up because I didn't have the quote exactly right. What I recalled hearing someone say, it might have been my father, man from the South. Uh, it was a little bit countrified. Uh, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember what lie to tell. The real quote from Mark Twain is, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. All I'm getting at here is coordinate the message. Because if you have the driver telling a reporter, nonsense, I'm signed, everything's good. But then in a article Written today, same day the other comments were given, strong and respected young reporter says McLaren and Rosenquist have confirmed directly to the race that there's an option held for next year. And should it trigger that option, should it trigger that option, that means it has not been taken up, then goes on to say, if McLaren Racing doesn't exercise that option, Rosenquist will be free to negotiate a new deal in IndyCar with other teams, etc. What do all those things mean? There's no contract for next year. That's exactly what I wrote. Called out the McLaren Racing has signed a multi-year deal with Felix to remain on the driver's roster from 2023 and beyond. So here we have the team and driver confirming exactly what I wrote. To a respected outlet. <laughs> and yet... Other quotes saying, oh, that's total nonsense. I'm signed. Everything's good. What is it? You can't have it both ways. And so it's stuff like this where I go, come on, man. I didn't want to write that story. I want everything to be good and orderly in in place. But I knew that it wasn't. So what do you do here, y'all? I don't know. I just find it amusing where it's like, again, let's go back to Mark Twain. If you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. I'm just trying to work from the truth here. I appreciate Jack's efforts in reporting the truth. Also appreciate the fact that despite some nonsense and dazzle quotes elsewhere, let's just let the truth and normalcy be what we stand by, not nonsense. Because I tell you what, uh, there's been a lot of nonsense going on lately about drivers and contracts, what is valid, what isn't valid, what is real, what isn't. Um, Yeah. I just like trying to go towards what is uh, and not make up nonsense. That was that. But anyways, let's get rolling with the show here. A little bit of music bed for you as well. We're going to kick it off with our pal Nathan DeRover. He says, hey, I got a question. Nashville. What the hell was that? 
Oh, I'm going to hope that some or most of you read my cooldown lap columns on Racer. So I don't want to rehash stuff that I've put into 2,000 words or whatever. But yeah, uh, the WTF Grand Prix. Uh, I don't know how many more of those we can have, Nathan. Uh, James Malloy. I'm going to move on here next. You say, MP, I didn't realize Talladega was converted into a street course around Nissan Stadium. The driving standards were low, and it seems the series has been very lax on enforcement of higher standards. I don't quite understand this move, James says. Uh, while it's led to more drama and beef, it's also led to some boneheaded driving. Is there any real reason or expl explanation? I was about to say exploration. For this new direction by race control. Or did I just answer my own question? So on last night's Hashtag Racing Family show where we had Marcus Erickson and Jack Harvey on, uh, we got into this a little bit. What I found interesting from their comments and then just looking at this from a practical standpoint, I don't know where IndyCar steps in and intercedes and where they maybe step out on the specific topic of poor driving standards throughout this 80 lap contest. Were there some things that might've been egregious? Maybe. I know some folks were grumpy that Joseph Newgarden wasn't penalized for taking out Romain Grosjean. I've seen and read the conspiracy theories that, oh, well, he got a pass because Penske owns the series, uh, owns the team. And there was some, you know, uh, high sign or, or some sort of, of magic grassy knoll signal or wink from RP to not penalize his boy Newgarden. I don't believe any of that. It's complete nonsense. Uh, this was race control realizing that, hey, you know what? Uh, we don't say these things. We don't acknowledge them. And if you asked us, we will refute it and say Pruitt or anybody else who makes this statement totally wrong. But this was a get back. Uh, situation. This was a, you have been in the middle of quite a few of these kinds of things this year. I don't know if New Garden's ever really been embroiled in one with Groschamp, but I know that he seemed to have no interest in taking it easy on the guy. And as I saw it, this was 100% a get back situation. Got you back, right? Uh, not New Garden necessarily, but just a, hey, uh, you've been playing hard this year, Romain. You have been remorseless when folks have asked you about it. Kind of a shrug your shoulder and deal with it. Um, if you don't like my aggressiveness, you know, whatever. That's that's your problem, not mine. I saw this as a very clear, okay, well, now, uh, now you got it back. Goes around, comes around, and you got it. Was Joseph in the wrong? 100%. Uh, that's... Not to, to me, nothing to dispute. Joseph should have been penalized. Um, if this is him taking out name whomever it is that's a front runner that doesn't play like that, if this is Joseph dive bombing and coming in at a really unfriendly angle that wouldn't allow a Scott Dixon to make it out of the corner, or a Pato Award, or again, name some of the others, non-Penske drivers. Uh, if he does this to Colton Herta, does this to Rossi, 
I absolutely believe IndyCar race control gives him a drive-through, gives him a something to get him back, penalize him, send a message. The fact that this, on this specific situation, was Romain Groschamp, I believe that is the mitigating factor. This is the thing where you go, oh, okay, yep, got it. Um, I just mentioned this, James, because that was a bit of a special deal. Uh, our man, Kirk Kirkwood, doing kind of sort of the same thing. Late pass, shallow angle, really not leaving much of a chance for Malukas to get out of the way or get through the corner. They both crashed out of the race. Who do you penalize? How do you penalize those guys? Um, I'm not saying there weren't things that could have been tagged by the series. And, hey, you drive through, you give up five positions or whatever. There was a little bit here or there of give this back, give that back. It was more procedural stuff, restarts and getting out of line and whatever. But I just came away with this, James with a where do you start because if you start this process you pretty much don't end it because you're then having to look through everywhere and find every angle of everything because i bet you although the nbc crew did their darnest to capture everything boy there's a lot of stuff that just clearly never made uh made the broadcast because i don't know how you could capture all of the hits and runs and errors so that's my takeaway here and i've had a number of questions about this so i wanted to spend a little bit more on it here to open but i don't disagree with you that boy the standards were terrible marcus and jack mentioned there's the the driver group group chat they are talking about how could we clean things up and do better I mean, we're going to Gateway here. We're going to Worldwide Technologies Raceway next, then Portland, then Laguna. Three places where you do not expect this kind of behavior. Um, So I don't know if it's so much of an issue to believe would be coming out of Nashville, James, and then polluting the rest of the races we go to. This track just generates this kind of stuff, invites drivers into this kind of stuff. So it's a worst behavior race. But I do see this as more of a one-off. It happened last year, right? Same exact thing happened last year. It didn't carry over to the following races. So, yeah. Uh, Why don't we go to Thomas Gross? Says, hey, can Nashville be reconfigured? Um, That's a great question that I need to ask Roger Penske. He's not the promoter of the event. Um, He's not the circuit designer. But there is certainly something where I would say from a series quality, integrity, you name it standpoint, I would have to imagine Roger or one of his senior leaders would be reaching out to the promoters, to our pal, uh, Mr. NZR consulting himself, Tony Cotman, to say, hey, that bridge uh, all, not all, but seemingly all the problems are caused coming off it, going on to it, whatever, just that bridge on both sides, boy, that's where, uh, that's where we have the majority of our issues. What can we do there? That would be a city council thing as well. I mean, they can't just make up their own track. They need to 
run that by and hopefully get approval from uh, the city. Um, can it be reconfigured? Yes. What would it be reconfigured to, and what would the city approve? Uh, questions uh, to get answered, hopefully another day. Our pal Right Turn Lever says, why don't we run Nashville in both directions? At the same time, odd number of cars go clockwise, even number of cars anti-clockwise. Um, you know, as crazy as that sounds, I wonder if we would actually have fewer crashes. <laughs> that might be uh, an antidote. Antidote? Yes, for sure, an antidote there. Uh, where else do we go? Where else do we go? Uh, why don't we move to Keith Lee, says MP. I think it's apparent that at some point last year, the drivers had a super secret meeting and agreed that Groshan's driving his aggressive style. It was not okay. And all decided to give him a taste of his own medicine. Would you agree? Do you think Groshan has gotten the point yet and will start respecting his fellow drivers? Won't go into the texts, but uh, uh, Roman did, uh, did share some thoughts um, on his own Sunday night, and I didn't disagree with them. Like I said, uh, I don't think he did anything wrong in that incident. I don't think there was anything specifically there with New Garden that deserved the outcome. Um, I mean, Marcus Erickson, I believe, on the Racing Family show mentioned, because he tweeted something a little spicy at Romain, then said that they did speak, uh, I think, Monday morning to clear things up. But... Um, he did mention that his race was ruined when he got hit from behind by Colton Herta. I believe it was turn 11. And he got hit from behind because, as he said, Romain went lunging down the inside and Colton had to do a little bit of a panic reaction to not get hit. I think I recall seeing that. Don't hold me to that 100%. Marcus's frustration was not with Colton. Zero percent on Colton. A hundred percent with Romain. Doing a little bit of a dive bomb, creating a scenario where the closest driver, in this case, that being Herta, had to scramble and ended up hitting the back of Marcus's car hard enough to uh, jeopardize his vehicle's ability to drive and go forward. Um... I don't believe Romain, or for the most part, 90-plus percent of the drivers were innocent on Sunday. I'm sure everybody, just about everybody, did something to screw someone else over, hit someone, do something that wasn't cool. Singling Romain out for Sunday, I don't know if there's anything that was big enough to go, oh, yeah, for his actions in 2022 at Nashville, that guy deserved getting walled by New Garden. But coming back to that cumulative thing, is there a sense among some of the drivers that, hey, if there's a 50-50 scenario and I could either make a clean pass and leave him room, not run him off the track, not send him into the wall, do I think some would say, hey, you don't seem to care if you do it to me, so I'm not going to care if I do it to you? Yeah. Keith, I do think. I don't want to. <laughs> I want to say there was a meeting among all drivers to do this, but yeah, I have no doubt that there are some drivers who 
given the opportunity, will not take care of him. Do I think Romain has maybe taken some of that away and gotten that impression like, okay, crap. Um, I don't, this, this mutually assured destruction thing, uh, maybe that's not the way to go forward. I think so. I want to ask him. Um, I'll, I'll reach out to him here shortly and, and say, hey, did, did this change anything for you? Will it change anything for you? Um, see what he has to say. Oh, I realize that it gives us stuff to write about. I realize that it makes headlines and blah, 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 blah. Uh, maybe I'm getting old and soft. I don't know. But I... I just want to see these folks do amazing things and make amazing storylines from hard racing. And oh my gosh, can you believe that pass? That was incredible. I want to worship. I want all of us to worship the drivers who make up the NTT IndyCar series and IMSA and many other series too. But I just want all of us to marvel at their skills and the daring and the, I can't believe, did you see that pass? And whoa, and hey, he or she tried and they spun out. Oh boy, and the crowd oh, goes wild and wow, right? Like that's the, the drama that I love. The one driver's pissed off at another or a lot of drivers are pissed off at, an, at one driver and they treat each other poorly and, and run each other off the road and blah, blah, blah. Like I know that's totally a NASCAR thing. I know that's just part of the deal and has been forever, and that's what it is. Got it. I I don't care about that stuff. That's not what motivates me, and I, I don't think it motivates many of you. Some of you, I'm sure, and, and I'm not passing judgment, but I do think a lot of us are here because we love this and we want to see it at its best and want excellence to be the thing that we cherish and whether it's a lawsuit between a team and its driver or a driver walling another one and then being kind of chirpy and dickish in a post-race interview about it or whatever else, like, yeah, um, not really what I'm here for. Uh, why don't we go to Dylan Doherty. How you doing, Dylan? Uh, says, was working turn eight this weekend. Um... Thank you, by the way. That's greatly appreciated for you uh, being a volunteer. So it's hard to tell from that end of the track, but it seemed like there were a lot fewer fans this year. Yes, how long is this confirmed for? And uh, were there still enough fans to support it long term? You also say some nice things, offering wishes for the best health for my wife and safe travels, and to say hello to the cats for you. Rocky, Rosie. Dylan says, what's up? They're currently snoring. Um... I don't know the length. I have to believe it's there's at least one more year on it, but again, I could be wrong. Had the same thoughts. Did not look like the place was overflowing with fans uh, by any means, nor did it look like it kind of measured up to last year in terms of how many fans were in the stands. But I also have to keep in mind that it was super hot. Like I know last year was super hot as well, but... You throw in the rain and lightning Saturday and Sunday. I do have to wonder, Dylan, how much that played a role in the turnout not looking like at least a match for what we had last year. So for that alone, 
it makes it hard for me to draw any real conclusions of were folks staying away because they didn't like what they saw last year, were the prices too high, you know, all the things where you go, those are negatives uh, coming out of 2021 that led to a decline in turnout. I just don't have any insights on that to offer and do wonder if the poor weather is something that just made uh, folks stay away. Uh, Brian Dywert, how you doing, Brian? Uh, let's see. Marshall, may you, your wife, and cats be doing well. Nashville, what a crazy weekend. Even crazier race. My voice is cracking. I'm going through puberty. Fun. Uh, say, can you please do some racing 101 and explain what a banker lap is during qualifications? Absolutely. You say, why would a team want to do one? Why would a team not want to do one? Definitely generates a lot of discussion. Uh, of course, Brian, thank you for sending this in. And that's another thing, too, which I fail to encourage uh, in these shows as much as I should. And that is, we're always here to talk about the latest thing and the race that happened or the silly season stuff, whatever. We're always here to do that. It's the week in IndyCar, so it tends to have a bit of a thematic weekly what just happened type deal. But do not hesitate to send in questions like Brian just did that are unrelated. They're, they're more evergreen. Uh, thing we want to learn about stuff, talk about whatever that isn't exactly topical about the last race. Let's do it. Uh, this does fit a little bit, though. So, banker lap. Road and street course qualifying. Split into multiple knockout rounds. Teams have, coming into a weekend, a finite number of primary tires and alternate tires. The alternates, the ones that tend to have the red band around the outside this past weekend, it happened to be green. Um, if I remember correctly, what is it? Uh, six sets of primary and three alternate, I think, or is it five and eight? I apologize. My brain's farting, but somewhere in that range. Uh, definitely far more primary than alternates. Brian. So there tends to be a little bit of conservation of the alternate tires and their use through practice and qualifying. There's a, a newish rule with the extension of the first practice sessions on road and street courses to 75 minutes that says, hey, used to be a thing when it was just 45 minutes long where uh, we would say, let's save the alternate tire use for the second practice session. Well, now one of the concessions being made in extending the first session, try and give fans a little bit more, be on track more, give folks better return on their investment. Um, you can use one set of alternate tires to do a qualifying simulation, get a feel for that on Friday, for example, and then that's it. Can't use them in free practice too, so you only get one set to use in opening practice session, and teams in general will severely limit how many laps they do on those alternate tires. Then they go into qualifying. And it's not uncommon for most of the sets of reds, if not all, to get used, but at least one, two sets is kind of the norm of what gets used. And so just using this mindset here, Brian, it's conserve. Do not use your alternate tires a lot because they tend not to last as long as the primaries right they're kind of a grippier do better lap times but have a shorter lifespan creation and so what you get is 
teams waiting to use them in those knockout rounds, right? Ten minutes long each. They tend to wait towards the end of the session to bolt those on. And so with that conservation in mind, what you usually get, not necessarily every single team does it with every driver, but what you tend to get the vast majority, Brian, are teams that say, cool, we've got 10 minutes. We know that the more lapping that gets done, the more rubber that gets put down by the lap. So the later we go into this 10-minute window, the more rubber that will be sitting on the track, dug into the track surface for our tires to then dig into and make extra grip and extra speed on through the corners or in break in the braking zones. So the later we wait, track evolution as it's called, later we wait, more rubber goes down, let's save our best, fastest tires, the alternates, for the very end. But hey, let's also not be too silly and just wait to the very end to venture out on those alternates. Let's go out early-ish on a set of the primary tires, not quite as fast, and also track evolution won't be as optimal, but let's put in a banker lap. Let's put one in the bank. That's what it's referring to. Let's put a lap in the bank. It's not going to be the fastest we achieve during this session if there are no major yellows or red flags. If it just goes normally from counting down from 10 minutes to zero, no distractions. Let's just be safe because we don't know if there will be a caution, will be a red. Let's put a lap in the bank on the slightly slower tires when the track isn't as good and get that recorded, then pit five minute mark, four minute mark, three minute, again, depending on the track length, right? Uh, we'll base that, that will base when teams tell their drivers to pit and we'll trade those primaries for alternates and then head out and set what would be, should be, the faster lap on the faster tires with a track that is in optimal condition in that 10-minute window. Where all this goes sideways and you get the good old turd in the punch bowl is when you have someone trigger a caution or red halfway through the session, late in the session, one or two minutes left, whatever it might be, as folks were who might have been waiting and not really investing time or effort to do that, put a lap in the bank on the slower tires, get caught out. It's the gambling and the risk. That's what we saw last weekend. We saw it at Toronto as well, right? There was some of that too where you go, hey, there's one or two drivers who made it through the knockout round into the fast 12 because timing. They went out early, put in a good lap. Wasn't maybe the best, but it was really good. And there was a, a timing of an incident where qualifying got shut down and everybody else, the faster, better drivers or the, the better teams and the drivers at those teams were unable to do their big, hot and sexy laps on the alternate tires. And so what happens? The person that said, hey, we really need to be smart here and invest in a banker lap, they make it through. The others complain, and this happens all the time. So just to close here, Brian, this is choosing to post a quick lap, not perfect, but a pretty darn quick lap on the tires that aren't 
necessarily the fastest, on a track that isn't necessarily the fastest, by teams who realize that, hey, uh, this track has a, a history of cautions, reds, problems. It's easy for those to happen. Let's not get caught out. That's what happened with the A.J. Foyt Racing uh, team and Dalton Kellett last weekend. They actually happened to send him straight out on the alternate tire, saying, we're not going to fart around. We're going to do that right away. Um, brilliant on their part. And this stuff tends to happen on street courses more than any other type of road or street circuit. I don't know why I just added street circuit, but this is a street circuit thing, uh, especially not so much St. Petersburg all the time or Long Beach, but Detroit in its former layout uh, at Belle Isle, and definitely what we saw last year, Brian, at Nashville. Uh, that's a thing that mystified me. Uh, I am by no means super smart, but I do have a good eye for what happened at a place last year. And, hey, with all the problems caused at Nashville and all the cautions and all the crashing and all the everything, do not wait! So I don't know if we should credit the Foyt team and Kellett for having some like brilliant, some stroke of genius thing, or if they just kind of looked at the scenario like I did and said, yeah, don't wait. Oh, please don't wait. This place is going to absolutely kill you if you do that. That's what happened. So that's what you get with banker laps. Uh, Jeffrey May. How you doing, Jeff? Um, I feel compelled to share this again that, uh, I actually have a few more letters in it, but that's my middle name, Jefferson. So I was called Jeff for about the first 18 years of my life, something like that. Yeah, maybe if not longer, I don't know. So anyways, hello, fellow Jeff. Says, says, uh, what was the general mood in the paddock regarding the green tires? They seemed not super great on Saturday, but during the race, they looked like they held up and did a good job. I thought it was super cool and hope we see it again. I think you nailed exactly what happened here. Big question marks, Friday in particular, uh, then into Saturday a little bit of, oh, boy, yeah, we're going to want to get these things off as quickly as we can. And then I think folks were quite surprised by the amount of drop-off that did not happen in qualifying. So I think that changed folks' minds a bit. And then as we got into the race and folks starting on the alternates, uh, once again, unless the balance is way off on their car, I think the general takeaway was, yeah, these actually, these, these, yeah, these aren't an exact match in terms of durability of the primaries, but they are not as prone to falling apart, dropping off as quickly as we thought. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think most folks were, were pleasantly surprised, uh, at least based on Firestone's press release. They intend to do more races next year with the Wyoli green sidewalls and the Wyoli built into these sidewalls. Um, that was interesting, right? Interesting note. I was unaware of that part until I, I got the press release leading into the event that the Wyoli was going to be reserved for the sidewalls. Maybe that was in a press release from the month of May and I missed it when they were used during the pit stop competition. There was a note or two during the broadcast that, hey, this type of rubber is just in the sidewalls, not on the actual carcass that's touching the racing surface itself. I don't know how that was received by folks. Oh, is this just a gimmick? Oh, okay, you're just putting it in the sidewalls. What does that mean? Well, <laughs> yes, 
the the rubbery bits that contact the racetrack like that's where the grip is made right that's where a lot of the the special sauce happens um with the compound etc etc the sidewalls though like that's the brute strength and force and endurance part of the tire being crushed or attempting to be crushed under thousands upon thousands of pounds of downforce. I mean, the vehicle on its own weighs about 2,000 pounds when it rolls off at the start of the race with a full tank and the driver and ballast and all that stuff. Then you pile on thousands of pounds of downforce on top of that. And so, yeah, from a a strength and durability standpoint, uh, I think that is the main takeaway from the race debut of Firestone's racing tires with Waiuli in the sidewalls. We'll be curious to speak with the awesome Kara Kristolik about this and find out, hey, what are you doing? Or what is the plan to try and maybe work some Waiuli into uh, the the tire surface itself? Um, The the contacting bits of the tire. uh, Because I don't know what the plan is, but I'd love to learn about it. So long overdue in having Kara on the show. Maybe I'll reach out if she isn't on vacation this week of which she would certainly deserve, uh, and see if maybe she'll be our guest to talk about it, because, uh, yeah, that seems like a timely thing to do. Uh, where else do we go next? Let me take a look on this little device here, and, yeah, we got we got a little bit of time. I also know that I gave you a bit of a long uh, intro to the show talking about some fun stuff, so i still got plenty of questions to get to one or two i asked to be included um our pal cassie johnston i I felt like a dummy coming out of last week's show because you had sent in a great question and i was looking forward to reading it and when i didn't see it uh above the red line of death i totally spaced on it so i asked jerry to throw it back in here so that's coming up in just a moment and neil uh and i always uh, murderize your last name, Doiker? Dweaker? Duker? I don't know, man. D-U-I-K-E-R. I'm sure the rest of you know exactly how to pronounce it. My brain. Uh, uh. Uh, Neil, uh, I also asked for this one to be included. Uh, you said in the off-season, there's a rumor of an IndyCar version of Drive to Survive. So I wish IndyCar would have just worked something out because this season's content would have been bananas. A team suing a driver... Another team recruiting drivers from their current team. Silly season going bonkers early. Drama surrounding the 33rd entry for the Indy 500. Andretti's team meltdown at Mid-Ohio. Groshans run-ins all season. Sponsors refusing to keep commitments. Close championship fight. I've never seen so much on-track and off-track allure. Did IndyCar miss its chance? Oh... Uh, so a little bit of a sidebar, uh, at Iowa in the media center, uh, I was positioned all the way to the left, all the way at the front. And in front of me, there was a gaggle of five to seven, uh, video production audio type folks. And didn't super recognize them, recognize one or two from just seeing them walking around, doing whatever, but didn't really put everything together. And I'm like, again, this is just me being an idiot, Neil, but I'm looking at them going, whoa, this isn't, 
you know, the usual one person doing the little end-of-day video reports with their driver type deal. This is a serious production. And looking at the equipment and the uh, all the hands-free or Steadicam equipment and just, right, looking at everybody and what they were using, this was very clearly a lot of money being spent very serious production and so i'm like huh i wonder if the uh producers that i heard about um that are doing this or, or we're putting something together i wonder if they're out here capturing some more or what's going on i then found out no it's the folks doing the whole jimmy johnson uh series uh video series and, and docu whatever you want to call it after each race so that's amazing that's fantastic but i did have a little bit of a, a hope here neil that like oh is this the thing is this drive to exist drive to not fail whatever you might call the indycar version and no totally wrong now uh the last thing i heard is there could have been something happening in and around the indy 500 um if there is or has been a crew capturing this kind of stuff at recent rounds i've just not seen it so again entirely possible uh but yes your takeaway here has been my own I know that Drive to Survive has been criticized, I think mostly from its last season, maybe a little bit from the season before, but I know it's been heavily criticized by Max Verstappen and some others of just playing to whatever dramatic element over dramatizing things all at the expense of uh, accuracy just to try and create wow, woo, zingers, and woo, and wahoo, and woo, yee, like all this kind of, right, low-hanging fruit. <sighs> so with that said, everything you've mentioned is what I've been thinking about very recently, of, man, if if there is going to be an IndyCar drive to survive, there sure has been a poop done, poop, poop ton put on the good old platter for them to capture. I just haven't seen those cameras around to lead me to believe that that has been happening. And so to your exact point, and it's a great one, Neil, there's no way this can continue next year like this, right? Like this has to be a once in a lifetime thing where IndyCar just loses its freaking mind. Um, Alex Pillow has, from what I'm told by a lawyer friend, like the highest of high-end lawyers representing him. Uh, that friend has said, like, look, I, no idea who's paying that retainer, but like, uh, boy, this sure doesn't seem like something he could afford. Who's paying for it? I don't know. That would be something to find out. If there's anything there, maybe there isn't. Who knows? But, like, what's going on there? When did this conversation happen? How did this go off? The thing I mentioned, uh, I don't know, an episode or two ago, uh, how one driver told me that they heard uh, the day before this whole 
uh, contractual thing with Ganassi really went south that there was, uh, I think it was a 500th win luncheon or something at the Ganassi shop. And all the drivers were there and the crew and whatever. And each of the drivers took a turn speaking. And uh, again, this is what one driver's told me. I wasn't there. So I'm not saying this is accurate. I'm just saying this is what I was told by someone who seemed to know a lot about it. Um, and each of the drivers stood up and said things. And Polo said really positive, happy things about being there and wanting to be there and all kinds of, you know, just nothing to give any impression that he wanted to leave, nothing to give any impression that he didn't want to continue racing and winning with them for years in the future. And again, just right. And then apparently later that day or the next day or whatever, things totally blow up. That's the story that I was told. Is there some way to find that out? Chase that. Like, I'm just thinking about drive to survive. And how any little nugget like that, that could be divisive or explosive or whatever, like those are the things they parse out and have turned into a global phenomenon. So I'm not saying any of the things I've just mentioned actually would would bear out and be what they are, but just the possibility of these things, if we think about IndyCar and the Drive to Survive formula and how creating this spicier element behind the scenes to create new fans make them feel like they really know what's going on Joseph what if he was mic'd up all last weekend and whatever he would have said about Groshaw what did he say before what did he say an hour later in the bus what are, again I'm just saying using drive to survive as the formula and Neil's comment here, what's been occurring to me a little bit lately, too, of, like, whether it's all worthy of winning awards or whether some of it's a little bit salacious. And I know I've said that I'm not a big fan of salacious, but if it gets folks to watch IndyCar who aren't and to know about it and grows a fan base, I'm okay if they ride in on a wave of kind of semi-manufactured nonsense and then like what they find that's real and decide to stay around. So that's one thing that came to mind. Uh, why don't we uh, pick a few more here? And we're actually not too far away from uh, the red line O-Death. Uh, Max Camposano. How you doing, Max? Marshall, I'm sure you got plenty of questions regarding the unholy yellow-filled abomination that was the Music City Grand Prix. But I want to focus on one small mess within the greater mess. Uh, he says, I'm officially deboarding the Kyle Kirkwood hype train and would like my ticket transferred to the Callum Eilat and David Malukas hype trains. All right, hold on just a sec. See, we're going to take that ticket and we're going to move it over here, see, because we're talking about riding trains, see, and although nobody does that anymore, well, see, we're going to move uh, We're going to move off the Kirkwood train because it appears to uh, be broken or running into a lot of things, see, and so we're going to go over to the Eilat and Malukas trains, and uh, granted, there's also a little bit of damage done to them as well, see, but uh, I don't think that's quite as bad. So, Max, job done. Uh, you also see, another day, another Kirkwood wreck. I know he has unbelievable talent, but the accidents are impossible to ignore. Malukas, on the other, on the other hand, was just amazing before being, uh, we've coined a new one here, Kirkwooded. Jeez. <laughs> saying I lot. Uh, had a quiet day, but to me, he's been the most impressive rookie this year overall. 
You say Eilat is locked down for next year, but do you think there's any chance of Malukas being snapped up by a bigger team? Um, no. Spoke to David about it. Uh, didn't really warrant a, a story, but uh, he did say, nope. It's nice to hear, appreciate hearing all that stuff, etc. Uh, that, you know, maybe Ganassi might want me or whatever else. But he said, uh, I'm on a two-year deal with Dale Coyne, so there's no real uh, wiggle room there. And I can just tell you, granted, I don't know if Dale's ever had a lot of money thrown at him uh, for a driver. But Dale has always been very territorial of if I signed you, uh, I'm probably putting in a little bit of money myself somehow. But also there's almost always tended to be some form of not a you owe me but I've done things for you and I've moved your career forward and therefore you owe me back a little bit if Chip Ganassi shows up and says hey what is it going to take to get Malukas I don't know if Dale would actually even name a number Dale's a successful business person as well Um, also there's you know pretty big business going on right now between uh, Malukas's father, Henry, and Dale, right? They're involved in Indy Lights. They're involved in Indy Car. I know there's a goal to be bigger and more and to grow. So uh, that's the only real snapping up that I know of that uh, might happen. Uh, beyond that, yeah. Um, I don't know what's up with Kyle. Part of me wonders, is he just kind of getting out all the bad habits right now? Uh, is he just figuring, look, these cars, of course, things can get crumpled on them, but like, you know, these are all easily repairable. Uh, I am not throttling back at all. Every little gap, every little everything, I'm just doing it. I'm going to push, and if I spin, or if I crash, or what, it, like, I don't know if that's where his head is at. It's one thing if you've had a really solid rookie year and had a couple of DNFs, did not finishes. Um, right now, and this is an insane thing to say, our man Kirk Kirkwood is 24th out of 25 full-time drivers in IndyCar. Um, our man Callum, who you've mentioned, is 20th. Keep in mind that unlike Kyle, zero oval experience, so he's had to learn ovals this year, and missed a race at Detroit after hurting himself in a big crash that left him 32nd at Indy. So Callum is 40-ish points, almost 40 points ahead of Kirk Kirkwood. Callum's 20th in the standings. Had a terrible Indy 500 where he, at this double points event, finished next to last. So came out of Indy with very few points and then missed the next race. So missed points altogether. And yet, and he's also at the smallest team in the series with one car. So with all those things in a rebuilding year for them with new crew and engineering and every all the stuff. He's ahead of fellow rookie Kyle Kirkwood. It blows me away. And yeah, Callum's made some mistakes, crashed a couple times. I'm just looking here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Out of 14 races, 
Our man Kirk Kirkwood's crashed out of half of them. Uh, let's see. Since Detroit, he's finished three races. Crashed out of five. Uh, I don't know what this is. I just don't. I'm not off the train. Uh, I, I believe, see, it's going to be a good one, so why get off, even if you get lumped up a little bit and get bounced around the cabin a bit, see? Uh, I'm not jumping off the, the Kirk Kirkwood train here. I just don't know what it is. I'll tell you what, though, and it's not as if Larry Foyt or A.J. Foyt are like, yeah, yeah, kid, go ahead, crash all you want. Get it out of your system. No, they're not. Will Michael Andretti be holding Kirk's hand or anyone's hand if they continue chucking a car into the wall next year? Absolutely not. So that's the part that just has me a little bit bewildered here. Uh, Michael is not down with needless crashing. It's not like the Foyts are. Michael, though, is really not. Um, so I do wonder what's going to happen here. Because this trend of if there's something risky I might do that has <laughs> the potential of a somewhat low payoff, uh, but let me do it anyways, like uh, Michael's going to chew him up if that's what happens. So uh, I need to ask Kirk about this because it's just weird. Um, Cassie, I'm sorry this I didn't get to this earlier in the show. I should have, uh, but hopefully you're still listening. Uh, she says, MP, after a couple of race weekends in a row that she happened to attend, that being Iowa and Indy, I said, I am ready to proclaim we are seeing more women and girls at the track than ever before. She says, this is a huge swing from when I was a kid and felt like the only girl around. She says, no question here, just a big yay. And curious if you've noticed the same. I have, I have, and I have. And it makes me so happy. Uh, on the team side, celebrating the women racers, of which there seem to be more on a regular basis, uh, that's awesome. Everything I've hoped for for so many years. And then on the fan side, it's definitely something I've noticed as well. And like at the Indy Road Course, for example, I uh, was noticing not... Uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever, what I saw on multiple occasions, and I'm not saying it was everywhere, Cassie, but what I did see was two young women together, or two or three, or maybe some whatever age, but whether it's younger fans, uh, maybe more senior fans, um, just more women coming out on their own and being there, seeing it, enjoying it, taking it in, in numbers that I just have not noticed in years past. And it's amazing. And it makes me so happy. Like, truly. Because this is... I'm going to be the total homer here, but you maybe heard me say this a thousand times. I just want racing, the place where I live and work and have focus my life since I was in my middle teens I just want it to look like the rest of the world that I live in and I know that I'm not alone and so this spans gender ethnicity everything 
red state, blue state, whatever. It's all good. <laughs> like, truly. Hey, whomever we are, whatever, however we are, are made up as a country, whatever percentages and whatever this is and that, like, let's all be here too. And that wasn't the case for seemingly forever. And that has changed in recent years. And it makes me so darn happy. A little bit of a, a, a sidebar here. Spent, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half on the phone uh, with a woman who was so important in my racing career. Her name is Margie, M-A-R-G-I-E, Margie Smith-Haas. We spent yeah, a good long while on the phone late last week. Uh, I was so fortunate to be a mechanic, one of the crew members on her car, uh, Sports 2000 made by Swift, a uh, small sports prototype uh, in a series uh, sanctioned and run by the SCCA Pro Racing Division back in the 80s and 90s. Um, she won, we won the 1994 ACRL Sports 2000 Championship. And again, uh, being a mechanic on her car, being part of that team, um, it was amazing. She happened to become the first woman to win a professional racing, road racing championship. First of her kind, right? <laughs> Amazing. Margie had raced at the 24 Hours of Le Mans a couple times, done a lot of things here, there. Uh, she was part of the uh, the PPG all-women's pace car team uh, that supported all the car, IndyCar series races. Um, very well respected, uh, very well connected, just right. all this, you know, amazing, amazing woman in so many categories. Owned her own businesses, just right. She was kick-ass on every level. Like the things that we look at with, say, a Beth Peretta today. Beth, not a race car driver, but all the other things she does as a businesswoman and team owner and all that. This is what Margie did along with her husband, Paul. Uh, owning their own team, running, just phenomenal. Pure luck. My dumb ass was one of her mechanics um, when she won that 1994 championship. And when Christina Nielsen was nearing, was about to become IMSA's first uh, woman racer, female driver champion in its GTD Pro-Am category in, what was it, I think 2015, 2016 or so, was there at Petit Le Mans when she was about to be crowned. Basically, all she had to do was start the race, and she would be crowned the champion. And IMSA was doing its best to find ways to minimize and diminish Margie. And I know that because they had mentioned, oh, you know, Christina could be the first women's champion. And said, I'm like, eh, actually not. And I'm just saying this because I know, because I was there by chance, uh, that Margie actually, SCCA Pro Racing the same organization that sanctioned the Can-Am series, that sanctions tra sanctioned and sanctioned Trans-Am, and named some of these other big pro racing um, championships, all by SCCA Pro, um, she's actually the first. And then I started getting that, well, you know, it was kind of one of the smaller championships, so, you know, Christina would be the, the, the first woman to win a major 
pro race, you know, road racing, pro racing championship in, in North America or in America. And I'm like, yeah, that's still, still not right. <laughs> You're attempting to minimize the first real champion to promote your champion. And since you have it set in your mind that you want her to be hailed as the first, you will come up with every little asterisk and exception to downplay Margie in order to play up Christina. Like, just so I'm clear, your goal is to tell the world, hey, something amazing has happened for women in racing and we've just done this thing that's never happened before. And we want to celebrate women and their achievements in racing by shitting on one who won a championship 10, 15 years ago in a separate organization. Yeah, I don't think that's how you champion women, man. They didn't want to hear it. They went forward with it. I wrote an article that was not very complimentary saying, hey, you can try and rewrite history, but let's not do that. And let's actually just honor all the women who've done amazing things. So anyways, I just mentioned that because I happened to spend a good long while on the phone with Margie. And beyond having the honor of being one of her crew members when she won the championship, she is directly responsible for my current career. Even though I did not start uh, doing this reporting type thing till about the middle of 2006 with Speed and Speed.com, uh... It was in 1994 where, again, through her connections and just being a well-known veteran of the industry, uh, the folks at On Track Magazine, my absolute favorite, reached out to her and said, hey, uh, I think it was the season finale maybe? I don't, I don't know exactly what her second to last race is going to be up at a new track. And it's kind of far away and we don't have anybody going there. Do you know anybody who might be able to write a race report for us? 200 words pays $50. For reasons unknown, uh, Margie said to me, hey, want to write a race report after this event? I think it was at Thunder Hill up north of Sacramento, to which I said, sure. And I labored over those 200 words that were terrible, like you wouldn't believe, but I did get them filed. I did get, I think, again, 50 bucks just as a crew member, writing my first ever race report. And although it wouldn't circle back for more than a decade, like that opportunity that Margie specifically offered to me, presented to me, uh, that set the hook. My fr I, I just realized that when she and I were talking uh, last week, I'd forgotten about that. But it was such a... Uh, she was saying some nice things to me about thanks for defending me when... IMSA was trying to crap on me, and and uh, she's going to be in Monterey here next week uh, for, for Car Week. It's going to be her, Lynn St. James, Beth Peretta, and, and some other women as well, um, uh, women racers panel. Um, and so she was just telling me that she was, you know, hoping nobody's questioning her credentials or whatever, and I think it's all triggered by IMSA just, again so embarrassed by the, the path that they took but I, she just was saying some nice things about you know i still do appreciate you sticking up for me in print whatever i'm like look uh, you know you're a badass of course what else am i going to do um 
but it was just fun that in that conversation, I was like, she was saying that to me, and I'm like, well, hold on. I think I'm the one who owes you the big thanks, because there's no way I could have written a don't you dare steal uh, Margie's achievement from her uh, story without you being the one prompting me and giving me an opportunity to write my first ever anything. So uh, I know we've gone into overtime a little bit here, but I, uh, yeah, just appreciate her and appreciate all the amazing women who are in IndyCar and in IMSA. Um, uh, Jessica Mace becoming who I thought, having asked around a bit as well, some others thought she was indeed the first woman to go over the wall and uh, win an IndyCar race as a tire changer, found out that no, Tess Gape, G-A-P-E, was the first. Uh, And as I wrote in uh, the, the Jessica piece, I always have to use believe to be because there's just no extensive record of uh, what women in racing and people of color have uh, achieved in racing. So I always write these things with the expectation of a text or an email or a phone call the day later saying, hey, by the way, uh, there actually was someone else who did something first. And you always try and, you know, add that in and and celebrate those because, again... um, I don't know, maybe uh, before too long we'll actually have a pretty decent chronology of uh, who's done what, when, and where for the first time. But uh, hoping to catch up with Tess here soon. I got her contact info, uh, spoke with Ryan Hunter Ray. Uh, She won the 2003 Surfers Paradise race, changing the right front tire on RHR's car, and uh, he helped clarify that. Uh, So, again, thanks to him. Also, uh, another friend, Michael Cannon, clarified that as well. So I got Tess's contact info, and she's on my list uh, to hopefully reach out to and do a feature on her badassery in the offseason. Never met her. I don't think I did. Maybe I did. Who knows, back in the day. But uh, her win in 2002 would have come two years after my last year working uh, as an IndyCar crew member. So um, why don't we kind of wind things down here? And let's see, just going to see if there's anything else to dive into. Murderhawk, <laughs> you wrote in, uh, you for the murderous Firestone um, caricature, saying, with all due respect to the fine folks at Cooper, who is the best mascot in all of motorsports, and why is it me? It's not you, for sure. Um, uh, I think being a murderer, uh, that's probably something that precludes you from being the best. But I'm open to suggestions on what other racing mascots might be the best. Um, F1 underscore Finn, you're going to close the show here. Uh, You say Ric Flair's last WWE match. It's a week ago at 73 years old. Is the great Mario Andretti coming back at 83 after Dixon uh, maybe passes him and makes sure that Mario can get all of his records back. Yep, so he did uh, break that tie, moved into sole second place here in the all-time win list. I would not put it above, right? Hey, uh, the 29 Andretti car, could that need someone in it next year? I know a certain G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, who uh, (laughs) I would be considering for that seat. No doubt about it. Y'all, I appreciate you. Appreciate everything you sent in. Uh, glad that we did not burn too much time uh, on the Nashville nonsense. And I hope that uh, what I wrote in the cool-down lap 
um, certainly sufficed there. Uh, Chris Kulawick, you sent in something really nice here, just saying thanks for the podcast. And that's sweetie. You also mentioned some nice things about uh, my wife. And uh, I apologize if I don't recognize uh, you from previous questions. So if that's your first, just wanted to uh, uh, say thank you to you and encourage any of y'all who uh, listen and have not sent in questions, please do. Like I said, we don't always get to them, but I appreciate them. And comments sometimes, too. Hey, tell me your take on something. Like, I look, I get those every week in the Racer Mailbag. No reason we can't get some of them in here in the good old Week in IndyCar listener Q&A. Brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. And hopefully, I don't know who the guest will be, but uh, we'll have that person here for you in the next day or two.